Greetings, Internet. Once again, it's time for a D&D podcast. I'm your host, Mike Merles, and with me this afternoon is Rodney Thompson. Hey, everybody. So we're recording this podcast as a follow-up to the uh, playtest of D&D Next that we live-streamed on Friday, uh, July, let's see, 12th. 12th, right? yeah. yes. So let's say 13th, that's a Saturday. So yes. The uh, summer's going by pretty quickly, and the entire process of working this game's going by pretty quickly. Um, so in any case, uh, we wanted to, much like the last episode, talk a little bit about the game, the session, uh, what we see, and some of the changes you might expect, or things that we liked about how things went, or things we didn't like. So Rodney, why don't we start with you? What were some of the things you observed? Uh, I think this time around, obviously, we were a little bit more focused on sort of the story of what was happening. We did some role-playing with the uh, Cult of Many Faces. Um, I think most of, of uh, sort of my big takeaways from a you know debriefing standpoint uh, probably focus on the exploration rules that we used uh, and also a little bit on the way the combat uh, shook out because that was one of those situations where we were facing – uh, superior numbers. So there's, you know, some some uh, example of how like our bounded accuracy system came into play. Uh, but then also, obviously, the big uh, the big exploding flamethrower or whatever it was uh, was obviously another sort of what I would consider a subtle benefit of the way that our core rules work. Um, so that, this is where I turn it back around on you. Obviously. Nothing that that James did could have been scripted in game mechanics like, yeah. r- ahead of time, right? I mean, it was all just you know him jumping up on the card and punching guys, and then arrows and explosions. Um, how on your side of the screen? How would you say that that felt to you? Like what what did you use from our system to put it together and stuff like that? To give people some insight because I know like. I, I think I know what you did, but uh, I'm sure the audience would like to hear a little bit more because if you were just sitting and watching, I think that what you saw was, okay, the players improvised and the DM came up with something on the fly and then the, the DM improvised with the monsters and that doesn't really seem you know like anything that special, but I know that there are things we have in the game that make that a little bit easier for you. Yeah, and a lot of this um, is really about making it easy to improvise by giving the DM a lot of baked-in understanding of how the game should work. Right. So there's this old feeling I have about game design, uh, and this relates to board games, but it also applies to D&D to some extent, that if you gave someone a board game without the instructions and just said, hey, here's some components, play a game with it, a well-designed board game is one in which the players would play the game not exactly as intended, but they'd be going in the right direction. Mm-hmm. The um, And this kind of relates to a lot of the surveying we did, about, about maybe this time last year, Things like, how many hit points should a first-level fighter have? Mm-hmm. What should an attack bonus be? Things like that. Understanding what, if you just take a veteran D&D player and just ask them for a number that describes something, making sure that number has meaning and that the meaning we intend for the number matches that sort of just all understanding of what that number should mean. Is 20 hit points a lot? Is 100 hit points a lot? Right. Is 1,000 hit points a lot? Is 1,000 hit points too many? Right? Things like that. And what that does is it lets, I mean, because <clears throat> if you haven't played D&D before, uh, you're all you're just going to learn that. The um, but if you have been playing D and D for a while, I think there should come a time where the system runs fairly intuitively because you've just sort of picked up the lingo. Right. The uh, and I think that's something very important for the continuity of the game that you can move from one edition to the next seamlessly because it all makes sense to you. We're not really radically changing what you're expecting out of the game because mm-hmm. after after all, it is still Dungeons and Dragons. We're not making a new game per se. We're just iterating on an existing game. The um, and so my feeling on the, on the process in general was 
it was fairly easy for me because it was easy for me, for me within my context of being a veteran DM to think about what would be appropriate. So, for instance, when the card exploded, it was just, it was a fireball spell, right? You know, things like that. Now, obviously, keep in mind, I'm a veteran DM. Mm-hmm. We wouldn't expect a new DM to necessarily go through all that stuff to say, hey, how, you know, this is what I'll do and I'll treat it like fireball. Um, but a lot of that's going to come down to, like, teaching good DMing skills. Mm-hmm. Um, and this actually relates to something we've talked about. Uh, and while we're recording these these games, these sessions, I'd like for us to start using these as a starting point for talking about what makes a good DM and the different DMing styles because there really is no one right answer. Right. The um, But I think... The trick is with teaching, you know, good DMing skills is first there's different styles. So you don't want to just say here's the only right way because there's many right ways mm-hmm. the, um, based on your group and what you like. But there are things where um, it's good to be able to show people like how improvisation works, like a starting point. Like it's one thing to write about it. It's another thing to get people to read it and it's another thing to, to show people right. how to do it. So I think overall being able to, from my side of the screen to take a look at that cart First, to get James on top of it. And that's interesting because <laughs> you, know, you mentioned there's no scripted thing there. But one of the things I liked about the monk was, well, James wanted to try to get in the middle right. of the monsters. So as a DM, I can just put a situation where, well, if someone wants to attack all these guys, jumping on the cart's the best way to do it. Right? Yeah, there were, there were sort of the monk mechanics, uh, the, the flurry of blows, the ability to spend those key focus points was sort of the whip that that cracked behind him. He was like, oh, okay, I see I need to get in the middle of this big group because then as I'm dropping guys, I can easily attack the other ones. Exactly. And so much of that is just responding to the situation the dungeon master is presenting mm-hmm. rather than looking at the character sheet and trying to think, well, what is the special ability I have? You know, and how does it apply? Trying to get people more engaged and immersed in the game by getting them to think about the situation as a situation and what their character would do. The um, And then after that, I mean, there's a couple things that came up. Like the orcs showed up because um, you guys didn't know this because you were down the hallway. There were a bunch of orcs to the east. And mm-hmm. so the half-orc sent a messenger to go tell them, like, hey, there's something going on. So gather the troops and everyone show up here. So at the end of each round, I just rolled the die to see have the reinforcements showed up. And I think I rolled an at 20. So mm-hmm. they're going to immediately show up. And then the um, the attack against the um, the cart was pretty simple just if you did enough damage to it to start leaking oil. Right. So and I just rolled the attacks and I got a bunch of nat 20s. So a bunch of crits on the car. Though I don't know if objects can be critted, but in any case, right. they did a bunch of damage to it. There was like right. six archers firing at it. The uh, And then it was just a matter of having the orc chieftain throw sure. a torch at it. Which, sure. And then you trigger the fireball spell and you yeah. know then basically that just plugs right back into our normal saving throws and, and it sort of went from there. It's, yeah, I, I was sort of thinking about while you were talking just now about uh, the monk flurry of blows mechanic is a very simple mechanic, right? Like spend some key focus, get some extra attacks, but it's also a very versatile mechanic, right? Yeah. And I was thinking about, you know, the versatility, basically it puts a tool in the player's hand that he gets to choose how to use it, right? Then thinking about my rogue, I've got that that cunning action from being a thief, which um, if you didn't watch the podcast, basically our, our thief rogues, one of the things we're trying to do is give them an extra action they can use every round that they can use to hide or move again or manipulate objects. The whole time I was sitting there looking for ways to use that. And because I can't use it to make attacks or activate magic items or things like that, I was sitting there thinking, okay, how can I use this to do something you know interesting and fun? And I ended up, you know, using, okay, I'm gonna run in here and I'm gonna activate the or I'm gonna jam up the the gate mechanism, yeah. right? And so that was another thing that 
the I didn't have a you know mechanic on my character sheet that was like okay and on a roll of nineteen to twenty you jam a gate mechanism right yeah, exactly. but I did have something that was a tool it was it was basically a very versatile but also unique mechanic I mean it's something that nobody else can do uh, but I get to do that because I'm a rogue but it was really versatile and I think that is sort of a trend that I would I would like to see us continue to pursue in the player character side of things is finding unique tools to put in people's hands that can be used in a variety of different ways because that's going to in turn feed the what I would consider one of the most exciting parts about D&D and that is player creativity. Exactly. I think one of the things that we learned um in designing both for third and for fourth was if you're focused on saying, I need to create a lot of different game objects, like a lot of feats or a lot of powers, you end up scripting things more. Yeah. Because in order to make them different, the more precise you are, the more you can be different. Yeah. But kind of what we're doing the next is saying, we're not really worried about adding more stuff. We just want to do enough. Mm-hmm. Right? And so we can just, with like feats or like the rogue special ability. Yeah. Easily see two years ago that rogue special ability would have been pick one of these five things. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, if you think about it, really, that one mechanic, that cunning action, if that was a power, that would actually be four or five powers yeah. possibly, right? Because you would have, okay, move and then make an attack and then make an attack and then move. Those are two different powers, yeah. right? But now they they sort of work basically the way we designed the system with this more versatile mechanic, it can do the things that many different powers would do, but in a, a simpler, you know, packaging so that you get a lot more mileage out of a relatively small amount of text. Exactly. And players encourage to be more creative. And again, it ties into this idea. We don't really feel, we don't want to have to do hundreds of new feats and powers and abilities. It yeah. kind of runs counter to what I think is a good thing for the game. The uh, and and I think it's much the game is in a better place if new things are evocative if they are tying into archetypes mm-hmm. or really identifiable characters and things like that. Yeah, I want to talk about the cart for one second too because I realized yeah. um, in talking about it, the um, I think from a design standpoint, if this is a published adventure, mm-hmm. the the cart had some rules attached to it, and I think what I would want if I was say rewriting, if I was going to adapt the adventure to next, which mm-hmm. we kind of did, we did the monster stats. Mm-hmm. I'd want the cart to have basically how far it can move. How much damage it does when activated, what you need to activate it, and then how much damage it can take and how to make it explode. You know, things like that. Right. Because and, and now in, when we were playing, I kind of had to improvise some of that stuff because it was the first edition version of the rules sure. I was using it from. But I think that's like – so I, I wouldn't want people to think, oh, we're expecting to improvise things like, hey, here's this new siege engine we put in the game. Figure out how it works. It's more like we just want to kind of generally describe this thing in like a physics object sense. Mm-hmm. Then let stuff happen around it. Right. Rather than say, as a standard action, you can activate the card to make it blow up. Like, more instead say, if you set the card on fire, it will explode. Right. Know, things like that. The um, And again, it's really about trying to encourage creative play, get people, get players to be immersed in the situation. The um, the other thing I improvised was when um, Chris decided to push the card. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, yeah, sure. Because it wasn't right next to those other yeah. works. Now, that's a good example of something which would probably be like DM's going to have to improvise. Mm-hmm. Um, because I imagine if we wrote the, the card up, the stat block might say, well, it, it can move 10 feet per person pushing it, or it's sure. the sum of the strength scores up to the speed of the creatures or something like that. Right. The, um, and that was just more dramatic. Like, you know what, I think it would be kind of fun to have Chris roll a check to see what happens. Right. Well, it, this, that's sort of what I was angling at when I, when I asked you the very leading question going into this whole uh, discussion was um, basically from where I was sitting at the table, when Chris said, I want to do this thing, you were very quickly able to fall back on sort of our core mechanics, right? Yeah. You fell back 
on the strength check, which obviously is, you know, very easy to understand how that works. But then you also did the advantage-disadvantage thing. You said, okay, if you do this, I'll give you a disadvantage. But if you just do it this other way, you can just do it normally. But though you ended up giving him advantage, right? I thought that was really a great example of this tool approach on the DM side of things, right? Because we're putting so much focus on ability scores as the the sort of – engine that, that runs the player's world, right? You were able to say, okay, you want to do something using your strength, make a strength check. This is not something revolutionary, right? All versions of D&D have had this in one form or another, but by centralizing it and making it the big focus of the game, I think what we've done is we've pushed the game towards a, a world where it's easier for you to make that improvising, and then also you are able to add the sort of interest layer on top with, okay, do you want to do it cautiously and maybe not take any damage, or do you want to do it Recklessly take some damage, but you'll you know you'll have advantage or whatever, yeah. right? And I think that was just a, a good example of how you gave Chris a choice, and there were sort of interesting outcomes. He was able to weigh his risks and weigh his rewards, make a decision, and then run it all based on two mechanics, effectively, right? The ability check and the the advantage disadvantage system. Again, nothing revolutionary, but I think that. Ease and speed of play is a really good example of where the core system is working really well. Yeah, and that ties into the idea of the focus on ability checks to really encourage people that improvising or using ability check, especially in combat, mm-hmm. that is a it, it can be a good choice. Yeah, uh, and this ties into getting our DCs right, you know, because we want to make sure that. Mm-hmm. I think where I want the game to be is a DC 10 is the most standard DC. If you're making a check, most of the time it's going to be DC 10. Mm-hmm. And 15 and 20 are the hard DCs, and then 5 is the easy DC. Mm-hmm. The, uh, where are we right now with these? Were they, was this 15 the hard one and 10 is the, the easy? It, it kind of – right now, um, basically, we go all the way up to 30. Yeah, right? that's probably uh, too high. Yeah, yeah, I mean, we've, we've been able to hit it a few times, right? We've got the expertise die coming in, and, you know, I roll a natural 20, and I've got a plus 4, and yeah. I roll a 6 on my expertise die, and all of a sudden you're hitting DC 30. So in addition to thinking about, like, what the actual DCs are, one of the things we're going to have to do is look at how the bonuses come into play on the player side of things, because we've, we've talked about this in the context of the rogue before, right? When we look at a task, we often ask the question, like, how hard should this be for Joe Schmo, right? The guy that's got a 10 on the ability score. Then how hard should this be for the the character who this is their forte, right? You have a, a 16 or an 18 in that ability score. But then we ask the question, like, how hard should this be for the rogue, right? Yeah. And there's, there's basically this layering system of thinking about, like, is are these tasks that are specialized that we only want rogues to have a good chance of succeeding on? Are these tasks that we want anybody to have a chance to succeed on? Uh, DC 10 is kind of funny because you, you mentioned that as sort of our baseline um, for the average person. That means that 50% of the time they fail. Yeah. Right. And so we have to be comfortable with us saying like, okay, the average person, which is not the average adventurer, but the average person fails to do this task entirely 50% of the time. And so much of it is like the meta mechanic around it of telling DMs the check should be the exception, right? Mm-hmm. Like pushing the card, I think, should have a check because that looks hard. Mm-hmm. But like opening the door, mm-hmm. unless like the door is special, unless you really care, you know, there's that that 
that uh, the, the two ends of it are say, well, we're trying to, I'm running the game kind of realistically, mm-hmm. so this is a hard to open door, so you should be rolling for it. Mm-hmm. But then it's ridiculous if it takes someone five minutes to open this door, right? Things like that. Right. Where, uh, Especially if it's inconsequential, yeah, right? Exactly, like, right. I, I, right now we've got a lot of the stuff about, you know, inconsequential checks and do you even need to roll sitting in the DM section? And I think it kind of gets glossed over sometimes when people are reading the rules because you say, okay, well, there's, there's DM... Uh, DM intervention happening there to decide whether this happens or not, and it's not really a, a hard-coded part of the rules. But I think it's actually really important because you don't want the game to slow to a crawl for something inconsequential, yeah. right? It's all about does this matter and or should this matter? The other thing that we haven't really addressed yet that I, I think we'll want to, you know, coming up soon is the idea of, like, degrees of success. Because a lot of times yeah. when you make a check, you're not really making the check to see do you succeed or not. You're checking to see how well do you succeed. And I, yeah. I noticed you used this actually in the very first session the, a couple weeks ago. It wasn't really do you guys get the information, but how much information exactly. do you get, right? You're going to get something. You're going to get enough to get the adventure going. Right. But the yeah, because you, you didn't want to be in a situation where it was like, all right, make your check. All right, well, I got a three. Well, I guess the adventure's yeah, over because you have no what to do. Yeah, GG. <laughs> the, I, I did it with the um, when Chris's character pushed the cart, too. Right. Uh, I love doing that as a DM where it's like the, the better your result, the, the, the more benefit yeah. you get. The other thing, too, is when you think about it, let's say if a door is stuck, so it's DC 10, it doesn't mean the average person can't get through the door. It means they go to open it, it's stuck, so they jiggle it, then put yeah. their shoulder into it. They, it they can't get it open in this six seconds. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Yeah. If, you know, or like a Titan is, you know, with a strength of 25 is like a plus seven is in chains, okay, DC 20 to break the manacles. It's not like he can never get out. It just takes him two or three attempts. So right. 18 seconds, you know, to break three of the chains. Like, well, right. well, it's, pretty, it's pretty impressive, right? Yeah. <laughs> not only impressive, but also, you know, it produces a cinematic, uh, uh, Event right because yeah. like you see him straining against it, he strains against it. Boom, he breaks yeah. out right. But but then there's the interesting thing: if the fighter has a twenty strength and the DC is twenty, does that mean he gets out? Like you know, and then so sure. that's kind of where it starts coming in. I kind of would not be surprised if at the end of the day, where we ended up with ability scores was our starting scores went a little bit lower. Mm-hmm. You know, we kind of expected your numbers were you know you might start with sixteen as the average whatever right the um and that our high end stats go a little higher maybe go to thirty. The uh, at one point we talked about how stats over twenty would like it's plus two sorry plus one for every two points above ten mm-hmm. for your modifier and then it became plus one per point over twenty. Mm-hmm. Just you could have like the titan with a thirty strength is like plus fifteen and so you're like okay we just without having to say strength forty and then I mean does it really help with understanding is it nice to have a narrower scope mm-hmm. but the um, there is a funny thing of if twenty is the character max. What does it mean for what's above that? And like if the and also just things like you know a, a size huge creature with a twenty strength versus a size medium creature with twenty strength. Is there a difference there? And things like that. Mm-hmm. The um, so that's something where and we talk about the math behind the system. Now that we know what the classes should do, mm-hmm. now we just go back and say, okay, we know what the math the classes should do. We have a good idea what we want the monsters to do. The thing that binds them together is the math. Right. Now we can do the math. Like right. doing the math until we know what the game has to do doesn't really help us. Yeah, so. yeah I, I think that you know a lot of those things that you brought up are questions we have to ask. I don't really know which side we're going to fall on on any of the any given question. I do think that there is a possibility just to promote a little more growth. We want to might want to look at uh, bringing the the starting ability scores down a little bit. I think that's something that we've we've talked about. You know, pretty I don't want to say frequently, but we've considered it before. One of the things that that to me is is part you know math and then also part aesthetic about the game is 
an 18 should really be something special in the history of D&D, right? Like the, I always remember the old uh, uh, Onion article that was uh, uh, Bill Gates controversially gives himself an 18 in charisma, right? Yeah. And, you know, that that's funny, but that shows that an 18 in ability score has entered the, the common consciousness, the geek consciousness as, oh, 18 is a really good thing, right? Yeah. And I think that's important because uh, you – you were talking about earlier how like you develop a certain amount of, of expertise in knowing, okay, a fireball should do this much damage and an orc should have this many hit points. Knowing things like, okay, an 18 is really, really strong, that's an important part of that as well, right? And so starting with an 18, I feel like that should be more of an exception than a a common thing that happens, right? So we might look at things like, okay, well, you should you should feel pretty solid if you have a 16, right? Yeah. And not expect that, that really high ability score. That'll also give us a little bit more room for growth as you go up over the levels, and uh, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah. The um, So what else stood out in the session to you? Uh, we used the exploration rules a little bit more this time around uh, as opposed to the first time, and I think it, it highlighted, uh, as we mentioned at the end of the session, a few of the sort of challenges we face with it. Um, the, the big one to me is the whole stealth keep and watch issue, right? Yeah. And I, I think it's it's not quite as cut and dry as, as it seems a lot of times because you have a thing that you should be able to do, which is our party sneaks up on the orcs, that traditionally has been handled in a very uh, uh, difficult way to actually pull it off, right? Because as soon as the paladin in plate mail rolls the natural one on his dexterity check to sneak, then all of a sudden it's like, well, because you failed, we all failed, right? We tried in this you know iteration to address it by saying, no, okay, one person is responsible for making the group sneak, and that creates equally weird, you know, narrative uh, challenges, right? Yeah. So basically we're going to have to find uh, a nice middle ground so that the paladin who is sneaking along in plate mail doesn't ruin it for everyone, but maybe only if someone's taking the precautions to make that the case, right? See, I don't mind if the paladin's not sneaky. Because I think even if I just have one member of the party sneaking, then it challenges me to be creative in how I'm going to take advantage of that. Mm-hmm. Like, if I know the halfling rogue can sneak up on the monsters does he go and hide while the paladin makes noise to draw the monsters out Mm -hmm. you know things like that so it it doesn't bother me as much as the reverse where if everyone can just move around stealthily because what i believe would happen then is it's easy now for the party to always ambush people Mm -hmm. because most monsters aren't really optimized for like detecting hidden guys because you don't want in the fight the orcs are always detecting. The halfling's trying to hide all the time, and the orcs just always know where he is. Mm-hmm. You know, so there is some pressure there. I don't mind the opposite. If if the if there's a ranger in the party or some character who's just like I'm really super sharp eyed, it doesn't bother me if the players have an easy time evading ambushes. But it does bother me if the players are always ambushing the monsters. It's possible I've just read one too many Black Company uh, novels <laughs> because, like, they, I, I'm, I'm big on the idea that, like, a well-planned ambush is smart tactically and start smart strategically as well, right? So, ah, but an ambush is not stealth, though. We're well, about that's the thing, attack. though, right? A sneak attack isn't an ambush, well, right? well, I mean, yes, sneaking around and being hidden might be two different things. Yeah. So. But in the end, though, right... A, if you were to adjudicate right now that ambush, you might be asking for things like dexterity checks to hide, which the right. paladin so, might still take its penalties that's on. That's where right? I would say that's the breakdown, that you can hide a tank, 
Right. Sure. You can take an, an, uh, an Abrams tank and hide it. Right. But the tank doesn't hide itself. Exactly. Someone hides it. <laughs> well, exactly. Right. But that may be part of what the disconnect there. Although right? a few right. years from now, we may have self-hiding tanks. Yeah, exactly. So you never know what technology is going to give us. There's already that drone that landed on the uh, oh, yeah, the George Bush, the aircraft carrier. Yeah, that's right. So that, that was just last week. The um, And so that's what I would argue is probably more if you're talking about, hey, the, the, there's a skill or some ability I can use to set up an ambush and I can give people a stealth check as long as they're staying still, mm-hmm. then I'm fine with it because then we're encouraging the players, well, now lure the monsters over here sure. you know, or, or wait for the monsters to come by or whatever. But I don't like it being essentially like a, a stealth cloaking device. Yeah, right. And a lot, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that uh, setting up an ambush is a single event. Whereas the exploration rules actually are sort of an abstraction yeah. of many events. Exactly. And, and by events, I mean like, you know, hours or minutes or whatever of travel, right? Yeah. So stealth and, and boy, does stealth and uh, awareness cause many, many headaches in D&D period, yeah. right? But stealth is a great example of where the exploration rules abstraction might be hurting it a little bit. But I don't necessarily think that there's – yeah. Well, there's also a matter of scope. Because right. I, I could buy, let's say, if we're going through a forest mm-hmm. and there is some sort of check the ranger can make to avoid random encounters, that makes sense to me. Because in that case, I think the ranger is just saying, we're going to get off the beaten path and make sure where we walk is where other creatures don't normally walk. I could buy that. Yeah. As opposed to like, hey, we're walking along and we walk by an orc camp. And because the ranger did something, they don't notice the clumsy mm-hmm. dwarf wearing full plate. Like that feels more correct to me you know like not going to make some game design brilliant reasons just popped in my head right but if that feels more logical to me like okay that's you can you can do this to mitigate the chances of stumbling across monsters because the ranger looks at tracks or knows okay if we go this way it's less traffic because this time of day or blah 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 as opposed to like you're walking down a dungeon corridor approaching a door right the scale difference right exactly Um, you Again, the abstraction is larger in wilderness exploration yeah. than it is in dungeon exploration. But I would say even in the first case, if it's just I'm checking for random encounters, the druid succeeded so there's a lot less chance. If I do roll that random encounter, I don't think it's like the paladin's any harder to spot. Right. It's just there's a less chance because you know, there was an orc patrol active in the area, but they were off to the east. Sure. And we were you know, 400 yards to the west They just you know because we avoided them. Yeah, that makes sense. Like that. Yeah, I think that those were sort of the biggest uh, things that popped up. Um, I was I was pretty happy with the way. I mean, obviously my own character was uh, playing pretty well. I I thought that uh, uh, James had a moment of awesomeness, which is always something you want to see come out of a uh, come out of a, a, a special class feature like Flurry of Blows. So uh, at this point, mostly I think um, the biggest things we have to focus on going forward are, like you said, the the uh, like check DCs and where yeah. we want our checks to, to shake out and um, how we want our exploration rules to, to act. Because I think uh, we, we've we learned a lot through playtesting. And actually something that I can mention that we didn't show in the live stream was we've made some changes to our exploration rules based on our own internal playtesting as well. Um, and playtesting in my game where we talked about like time scales, right? Yeah. Like does it make sense for you to be checking for random encounters every hour or should it be something that occur- that the time scale changes – uh, instead of the DC, right, or the the number you need to roll for a random encounter, right? So maybe you roll, maybe you always are trying to get a twenty for a random encounter, but you roll once every hour in a densely populated area, or once every day in a sparsely populated area, right? So we're already making some changes there. I think that just then figuring out how we want the tasks to work in a world where it might be days between people declaring their tasks, that's going to be another 
another big challenge for us going forward. Yeah, exactly. The other thing, too, is the um, when you guys are talking to the uh, the cult, the face mm-hmm. cult guys, mm-hmm. the weird creepy dudes, I was using some of the motivation and character <laughs> traits we talked about. Yeah. The See, the, I didn't want to necessarily bring it up unless you did because I didn't want to sit here and talk about, like, oh, man, that playtest really made me wish we were actually using some of these other rules that we, we've been kicking around. Um, I was using them on my side of the screen. Yeah. I had, like, their goals and what they wanted. And so the way it works right now is uh, NPCs have, like, little role-playing stat blocks. If you saw the sample dragon mm-hmm. that we posted, you've seen one of these where it just talks about their goals, their ties to the world their personality traits and as you make you try to influence them your checks and their attitude toward you changes if you invoke certain things so for instance these cultists wanted this priestess alive so when you said things like oh we'll help you it's like okay i don't need to make a check yes okay great and yeah sure you can take the treasure we'll give you whatever you want we'll give you the slaves sure no problem if they had done other things, like you started irritating them when you started asking some of the questions. And I was right. like reflecting that, like, oh, you're hitting the things to make them mad. And right. We weren't using the, um, the basically the role-playing reward rules we've kind of been working right. on. So my belief is D&D is a role-playing game, so we should reward you for role-playing or give you incentive to role-play. Right. To think of your character as someone else, mm-hmm. um, not just you with a funny hat on. The, um, but what form those can take, there's a couple different ways we can approach it. I was thinking about using them in the last place test, but I thought, nah, it feels a little weird to have like the second half of the adventure using these. So yeah, kind of yeah. I think next time we start a new adventure, we should definitely, definitely yeah. be using those, right? But, but yeah, I, I was really wanting them because we were in a sort of role playing heavy situation early on, and I thought it would have been a, a nice. Uh, I, I wasn't sure if you were using that stuff behind the screen, yeah. so I couldn't really gauge like, okay, can I start asking about you know trying to figure out this person's ideals or or yeah. their you know what finding out a way to goad them or whatever. And I we sort of did that naturally, right? But I wasn't sure how much yeah. you had thought about that ahead of time. So so there would be cases where let's say for instance, if we were to go back and use the full rules, Rodney might say, okay, I, I want to make a wisdom check to try to figure out like when I mention this thing, how's the guy reacting? Like yeah. a better read on him. And you could say, oh, you get. You get the sense these guys really like whenever this name comes up, they get angry. Yeah. So, okay, these guys hate this, but like it just basically can solidify context clues you're getting from role playing. Right. It's also if you just don't want to speak in funny voices, you can just manage it as I say this, so I want to look at this, right? And so things like that. Yeah. The um, a very light. I think the rule of mechanics are a page, if even that. Yeah, I'm not even sure there's that much. Very straightforward. It's really just about getting DMs to think about their NPCs in this more standardized way you know mm-hmm. like what is it makes your npc tick what are they after what do they hate what are they afraid of things like that yeah. the um and then i mean what i really want to be able to do is encourage people when i make their character to think beyond the character sheet in terms of what makes my character unique mm-hmm. what's my character's story right. what's my character's history how can that tie into the campaign yeah. you know things like that and, yeah, uh, since we're playing with pregens right now, we don't have a lot of that information necessarily, yeah. and we we've all improvised it. But I think one of the things that we will be able to do in an upcoming one, where we do a new adventure with maybe new characters that we build ourselves, is yeah. really look at some of these different traits that we're talking about. I mean, we've we've uh, actually been talking about using the same kinds of things that we're giving the monsters in their role playing stat blocks on the PC side of things. So when I sit down to make my character, I don't just say, "Okay, I'm a dwarf fighter uh, who is a sailor" or whatever. I actually need to think about things like what is my what is motivating me to adventure? Like what yeah. put me on the path to becoming an adventurer? How do I act on, as an adventurer? Things like what are my flaws, right? Like, what is the, the what is the? Do I have any compulsions? What kind of things can the DM lean on to, you know, basically say, okay, this is triggering a bad part of your character, right? Or what are my ties to the world? Things like that. I think once we 
have those on the player side of things, it'll be even more. I mean, even more than it is right now. Like it'll be easier to create that line of communication between the DM and the player. Because exactly. I, I think that's what it all really boils down to. Because like a player on on his or her own can role play just fine, right? And a, a DM can run NPCs. But creating that connection between uh, DM and player and player and world, I think that's one of the strongest parts about this because we don't – you no longer just sit down and say, okay, I'm this character. You also say, I'm this character that is part of a larger world. Yeah. And the DM can reach out and pluck those threads from your character in really interesting ways, I think. Exactly. So as an example, I just kicked off a campaign last week, and one of the players um, created a rogue who is a member of this now-defunct secret police organization in the kingdom. And so one of his background elements was he left the secret police because his group had been assigned to murder someone. And he said that's this is going far beyond the limits of what we're supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. And of that group he worked with, all of them were caught and brought to justice for the murder except for one guy <laughs> who is sworn to kill because he believes the PC is the one who turned in the evidence that got them all caught and executed. Sure. Now, so now I have an NPC in the campaign I can turn loose on the party at some point. You know, and the, all the characters in the group having similar ties, not all of them necessarily malevolent. You know, some are like, oh, this person, you know, the Duke was, you know, I am the Duke's, you know, bastard daughter, you know, whatever. So I don't know if you use bastard for a daughter. I'm not sure. Yeah. <laughs> Illegitimate is the word you're looking for. Yeah. Yes. The, uh, or things like that. Where it's like, okay, now I have a tie and now you're kind of a pawn in political games and things yeah. like that. And your characters kind of come to the borderlands maybe to get away from that stuff. Or yeah. there's one of the, one of the players, his bard has evidence that this one, it's kind of a, there's like a Civil War kind of Game of Thrones-esque right. in the Empire. He has evidence that this one person has the only legit claim to the throne. Mm-hmm. But no one necessarily believes him, but he has that evidence. Right. So, again, it's another hook into this character of, oh, okay, this is what makes this bard different. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited, too, about some of the work we've been doing on backgrounds because, basically, uh, we've been talking about tying backgrounds into this role-playing system as well. And things like uh, when you create a character who's a noble, you take the noble background, one of the things that you might also do is, uh, basically, you help the DM define a noble that is your political ally and a noble that's your political enemy as yeah. well, right? So that basically at the time of character creation, you might also be participating in a little bit of world or campaign creation in the sort of back and forth between the DM and the player. Yeah. And I, I think that that really goes towards what I was talking about, about creating those lines of communication between DM yeah. and player. And we're looking at, I know in one draft we had in the backgrounds, having random tables you could use if you wanted to just roll yeah. the times and come up with a story. Yeah. It's also something where I imagine in the DMG we'll talk about, okay, DM, here are our generic backgrounds. Add your own tables or your own mix. So you can say, hey, I'm going to pick, I picked noble. The DM sure. say, okay, well, here are the six noble houses. Pick one, things yeah. like that. Oh, you pick this house? Well, this house is your enemy and this house is your ally, right. things like that. Yeah, I, th- I think once you have a world, whether it's a published world or a DM's creative world, at that point you can even go further than we are right now, right? And so yeah. You can do things like say, okay, hey guys, when you're creating these links between your character and the world, here are some really important characters or locations or uh, organizations or forces yeah. that you would then plug right into. And, of course, when we you know do things that with our specific settings, we'll be able to do the same. But basically, give a, a short list of things that a player could choose from to uh, really link into w- within the world so that basically many of the players might be creating links to the same thing but very different links, exactly. right? Like, I serve the king as his you know royal assassin. 
I hate the king because he uh, ordered the, the burning of my village, right? Yeah. Those are two different characters with a connection to a single element in the game. And I think that creates a really interesting uh, bit of world building out of character building. Exactly. For my campaign, I did something very similar to that. I, I gave the players three events. There was like the immediate event, which was the um, the downfall of the duke who had the secret police. Right. Basically, his brother illegitimately overthrew him, and he basically was a civil war. The near-term event within the past five years of a civil war in the empire mm-hmm. and a number of different people coming to the throne. Then the distant event 80 years ago, this fallen angel appearing like this divine prophet and start trying to start a new religion and getting stamped out. And those three... That's kind of like your World War II, your Cold War, mm-hmm. and your, I don't know, whatever just happened the past year that is still right. like – and last election, I guess, in the United States. Right. Or something that's like a defining thing, a budget crisis or something. <laughs> so you can kind of think, how is my character tied to these in the world? Right. So. Yeah, I think events are another thing that you can really do. And you know, I think about a lot of our settings, big events in the near past and distant past are, are a huge part of it, right? And yeah. I think that'll, that's, that's a really fun way to, to get – Especially if you can get multiple characters tying into the same one in different ways, that's great too. Because then you create an immediate link between two players. Yeah. And in my 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 campaign that I run, I did that very same thing with the first character creation session. And now I have players who are connected to each other, not always in positive ways. Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes, like two players will get off on a roll interacting with each other. And so, you know, ten minutes of the two of them talking back and forth, I just sort of sit there and watch and take notes and. Yep. Prepare. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Is there anything else you wanted to bring up? No, I think that pretty much does it. I'm I'm really enjoying running the uh, or playing in the uh, the live stream game, so I'm looking forward to continue to do those. Yeah, I think we have, we'll have one more session for this adventure, and then we're going to turn it over to different player, different mix of players and DMs. Cool. So, and then I think we're also going to do a board game session at some point. Too. Yeah, uh, as some people may know, I also helped design Lords of Waterdeep, and we've got our Scoundrels of Skullport expansion coming out, uh, and we're talking about doing a live stream. Scoundrels of Skullport game. Cool. Well, thanks for joining in. Um, until next time, keep playing, keep playing D and D, and keep rolling those natural twenties.